Well, good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, wherever you happen to be. I'm really pleased that we're getting a second chance to have a discussion with Brad Thor sometime after his book is published. So if you're here and spoilers happen, it's on you. It's not on us, right, Brad? <laughs> That's right, exactly. So the reason we're talking about Rising Tiger is that um, it's just come out in paperback this month. Last summer's book, last July's book, which was Deadfall, doesn't come out in a small paperback until the end of April. But I also wanted to say, before we really get going, that the next Brad Thor, uh, Shadow of Doubt, comes out in July, and Brad will be here at the Poison Pen on July 23rd. So in we'll, person, yeah. Yep, we'll be live, but we'll also be streaming it. And we hope that you can join us and feel free to um, pre-order the book whenever you feel like it's up there and ready to go. So with, you know, two books to talk about. And those of you who have not read Deadfall, before we discuss it, um, I would recommend that you exit the webinar here. So you won't. And we'll do that at the end. So yeah. we'll do Rising Tiger first, right? And then uh, today's a significant anniversary historically uh, with the background of Deadfall and everything. So we'll do a fun, you get a bonus. You thought you were coming for Rising Tiger, but you can stay for a little Deadfall behind the scenes chat too. Excellent. Right. And so what we're really dealing with is two major powers in Rising Tiger. We're talking about China and we're up on the Indian Chinese border in the Himalayas. Wonderful setting, really wonderful story. And then in Deadfall, we are um, dealing with Russia and Ukraine. But anyway, let's go back to Rising Tiger. You know, Brad, you wrote it a while ago, and this is not to insult you, but um, how much of you do, how much of Rising Fall do you actually remember at this point? <laughs> You know what? It's it's funny. My wife has a concept about memory that your that your mind is like an iceberg and the memories are penguins, Barbara. And there's only room for so many penguins on the iceberg. And so to make a new memory, you've got to bump an old penguin off. And sometimes he's swimming around the iceberg and you can get him back on. And sometimes he's just gone. So we'll see. There's a you know I spend a year working on each of these books and I delve into the 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 real geopolitics uh, that I choose to build my fiction around. I, I delve pretty deeply in there. So there's a lot I probably still still remember uh, about it. So and if I don't, I'll be honest. I'll say. Well, maybe the readers will actually prod us. <laughs> Neither one of us can remember. So why don't you set the scene? Because it's a, it's a really fascinating part of the world and a place where very few thrillers have previously gone. And that's what I was looking to do. And by the way, folks, uh, Barbara, where do we want them to drop their questions? Because Patrick is going to be collecting questions in the background throughout so that we can get to answering some of your questions. Patrick, where should we have them put them? Yeah, I was just I was just putting together a chat for everybody who's watching. Um, yeah, if you want to ask a, a question or make a comment, there is a, a function on the bottom of your screen that says Q&A. Um, if you would use that, just go ahead and click that and send in your questions or comments. Uh, you can use the chat uh, feature, but it's a little it's a little unwieldy compared to the Q&A, so I can keep them all in one place. And then uh, I'll be happy to, to uh, ask any of those questions. Right, and we really want and, this to be interactive. So Brad and I are going to say very little, and this is really your opportunity to talk to Brad. Absolutely. And so, Patrick, feel free as you get stuff to break in whenever I, you know, my family jokes that there should be a 12-step program for me instead of Al-Anon. It would be on and on and on. <laughs> I may, I you know, and forgive me, folks, because we've only done a couple of these webinars over the years, and um, I believe that I can allow people to talk. Uh, but let's start with the Q&A function first. That might be easier. So okay. Terrific. 
So Barbara, to answer your question, um, I had read this fascinating article about a uh, the way the border region between China and uh, India is structured way up high in the Himalayas is that there are no explosive devices allowed and no firearms allowed so that none of the skirmishes that seem to happen on a pretty regular basis ever spill over into war. And I read an article a couple of years ago about this incredible battle that happened where the Chinese in the middle of the night snuck across the border and attacked a contingent of Indian soldiers. And the Chinese had made their own improvised weapons, baseball bats wrapped with barbed wire, uh, pieces of rebar studded with spikes. And it was like something out of the Middle Ages. I mean, it went on for eight hours. They were throwing each other off thousand foot cliffs down into these deep uh, crevasses. It was just, it was absolutely horrific. They needed DNA testing in some cases to identify bodies afterwards. And I, I, I found this fascinating that this was going on between these two uh, very powerful neighbors. And so knowing that the United States is the world's oldest democracy and India is its biggest, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be interesting if we, as the United States and our Western powers, decided we wanted to create an Asian version of NATO to see that birthed and to put India at the center of that? What might that look like and what might the Chinese do to stop it? And so that's where the idea for Rising Tiger came from. And so Rising Tiger opens with that hand-to-hand -hand, uh, combat for eight hours in the Himalayas. And then it goes to kind of a shadow diplomat for the United States who's in India trying to get this version of an Asian NATO off the ground and he gets assassinated. So my protagonist, Scott Harvath, gets brought in to kind of look around and try to figure out what happened and bring the perpetrators to justice. And that's the background for Rising Tiger. Was there any discussion about why the Chinese did it? Uh, so we have a term that we use in English called salami slicing. And uh, in Chinese, they call it silkworming. And the Chinese are very patient and they're happy to grab an inch of territory, a square foot of territory, a square yard of territory. And so the Chinese are constantly pushing, pushing, pushing. They've done stuff in other countries where they've grabbed up, uh, grabbed, and I'm getting stuff on my uh, on my screen. I got, how did you read Rising Tiger? Oh, okay, I got it. I'll just drop this. I get a little poll. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, the, that's what the Chinese were doing. They're constantly trying to move in and take territory away from India. In fact, uh, China paid a bunch of yak herders because there used to be this agreement where certain tribes could ignore the border and go back and forth across the border, provided it was only during the grazing season. And the Chinese paid these yak herders to basically go across and graze, but then stay in India and claim those grazing lands for China. So it, it's amazing. It's small pieces of land, but the Chinese are relentless with the salami slicing. They don't care if it's just this much, that much land, they want it. And they want to, they want to lay claim to it and, and claim it as sovereign territory. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the same thing I did with Black Ice, where China declared itself a near Arctic territory. I mean, the closest... The closest Chinese settlement is over 800 kilometers away from the Arctic. It's ridiculous, but that this is this is how the Chinese see themselves and how they uh, how they operate with their foreign policy. Right, even into the South Pacific and islands there and so forth. So and creating yeah. islands, yeah, yeah, even. yeah actually mm -hmm. creating them. Exactly right. So those of you who are watching, um, did you know about this? Um, any of you uh, want to comment about the um, background for it or? Whatever.
And we, you know, it's funny. Uh, I will say this, Barbara, that one of the things that I heard from people after they read Rising Tiger, they really enjoyed the two uh, predominant Indian characters, VJ, who is the uh, retired police officer that Harvath works with, and then Asha, who's part of the uh, Indian intelligence community. And it's funny because I reached out to a buddy of mine uh, who used to work for the U.S. Diplomatic Security Service, and I said, hey, if Harvath has got to go over to India and he needs to dig stuff up and get a hold of information and find out what happened with the murder of this American shadow diplomat, who's going to help him? What kind of network might he have available? And my buddy Fred told me that every embassy has one of these kind of retired high-ranking police officers who's still plugged into the old boy law enforcement network who can basically help the embassy, whether it's we've got an American citizen that's been arrested or we've got some of crime and we feel the local police department's not paying the right amount of, of attention to it. But there is this position where we hire a local retired police officer at our embassies to help smooth the way. And I'd never heard of this. So it's, it's another testament to... Uh, how lucky I am to have the network that I do. Cause I always tell people I couldn't write these books by myself without the experts and people I'm able to reach out to for help on these, they wouldn't happen. Um, it's been interesting that since you wrote the book, we have discovered that in fact, India has sent agents out notably to Canada, Canada. following Putin's playbook, you know, of um, and the Saudis. Yeah, exactly. They went after Khashoggi. Yeah. So there is this, there is this creeping acceptance, uh, you know, and I call India is a democracy, but boy, it is not tilting further toward democracy. It's it's a very interesting situation. They could use a lot more freedom and liberty in India and focusing on uh, really improving the strength of their democracy. But yeah, you've you've seen this with uh, MBS sending uh, assassins to get uh, the Washington Post reporter uh, Khashoggi. Uh, we've seen it just recently, like this week actually with Putin uh, assassinating a helicopter pilot who defected uh, to Ukraine with this helicopter and then was living in Spain. Uh, so yeah, you see a lot of this. And then of course, with the assassination that happened in India, and if memory serves, I think there was one other one uh, where they wanted to blame India for it as well. So yeah, this creeping acceptance of going and committing murders, but Putin's been doing it for a long time, right? Right back to the scriptinol poisonings in the UK, uh, and Alexander Litvenko, of course, uh, Navalny uh, was killed in Russia, uh, poisoned before. Yeah, there, there's a lot of extrajudicial uh, assassination uh, stuff that's been happening, a, a lot more. It's, it's picking up at an alarming rate. I think so, too. I mean, Kim Il-jong took out somebody, his agents, um, somewhere in Southeast Singapore. Asia. Singapore. Remember. Singapore. At the airport. Yeah, the, the yeah. woman hit him with the, with the poison in the airport. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to be reasonable here, we're not entirely without it either, because we, after all, went out after um, Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Yeah, I, I mean, a, co a combatant, not not a political dissident, or, right. I, I mean, that guy, that, that guy, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time making the argument that uh, Alexander Litvenko, just for being a dissenter, exactly. uh, deserved to get it. Uh, so I think that there's a there's quite a distinction. Uh, you know, bin Laden, I, I feel that was a legit hit. Also, Soleimani, the uh, uh, the Iranian that we got in Iraq. I also I know that upset a lot of uh, a lot of Iranians, but that guy was up to some bad, bad stuff. And he was a he was a, he was a military person. He was a legit uh, combatant. 
It's a very interesting distinction. And I think you're right, you know, to, between a combatant and a, a dissenter or a disagreeer, um, even an immigrant, no, not immigrant, but immigrant um, mm -hmm. is apparently uh, vulnerable. So um, yeah, the reach that you know can happen is um, is global at this point. Um, right. So do we have any questions, Patrick? Has anybody decided to pop in? I can't hear you. There we go. How about, how's that? Better. Um, yeah, there are some questions coming in. And as I said in the chat, folks, please keep them coming. Um, and you've addressed this partially already. Uh, Mr. Thor, my name is Naim Perez. Forgive me if I botched that. Uh, and I've been reading your work since The Apostle. He says, I love Scar Scott Harvath and his adventures. In terms of your research pro process, do you visit the location you're portraying before you write your novels? Uh, in, did you visit India and Jaipur? So great, so great question. So you're reading The Apostle now, and I did go to Afghanistan to research that. Uh, and I did not go to India. Uh, COVID was really raging there. And it wasn't necessarily so much that COVID was there, but that the hospitals were overwhelmed. And my wife, who's a doctor, had said, you know, I know you'll take the, the, the steps you need to take to stay healthy in COVID. She said, but I know you. And the minute you get there, you will have networked your way into a motorcycle and uh, you'll be using a motorbike to get around. And then if you're in an accident, the hospitals are, are chock-a-block full and you're not gonna be able to get the medical attention you need. That was my, as a, as a medical professional, it was my wife's concern. So when I can't go to a location, and India is a perfect example, then I wanna talk to somebody I know who has been based there and who has operated there, whether it's somebody in law enforcement, military, the intelligence community, because those people are very good at noticing details. And so I actually, my children's godfather had been based uh, in India. And so I was able, and not too many years ago. So he, when I was writing the book, it was very fresh for him. Uh, he had just rotated home from India and he was able to give me some great information. He was one of multiple people that I networked with. So I like to go to the locations if I can. And then if I can't, uh, Black Ice Before Rising Tiger is another good example. I was hoping to go to Svalbard uh, the archipelago uh, north of Norway that Norway controls. And because there is no uh, real hospital system there, as soon as COVID hit, that shut down very quickly because they didn't have the capacity to treat and care for people and to airlift back and forth it, over to Norway. It just would have been a nightmare. So they shut it down because they were trying to keep COVID out of Svalbard. Uh, so I wasn't able to go there. But I know somebody that went there, particularly to look at all the Russian stuff there. And uh, he had some stuff that was not classified that he was able to share with me, pictures inside the buildings and some other really, really cool stuff. So uh, that's the kind of thing I do. If I can't go myself, I want somebody who's operated there, particularly who we were counting on to pay attention to details. So that's right. great to have books, boots on the ground, so to speak, and the you know help from your friends and contacts. But, you know, is the advent of Google Maps um, and imaging also helped in the sense that you can see the landscape? It, it helps a bunch. And I will give you the difference between Google Maps, Barbara, and actually going yourself or having somebody on the ground. Hmm. When I did my book, Code of Conduct, uh, I needed some information about the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. Uh, 
and so there was no way I was going. I would, that was one place I had no desire to go to in person. I was like, I don't want to go there. I'm not, I don't want to trek up the Kinshasa highway and do all these other things I was going to talk about in the book. And so friends plugged me in with, uh, with a, an a, a, a former special operations guy who was still doing a lot of stuff over there. And he was home in the U S and I asked him, I said, okay, he said, okay, Thor, you got five minutes of my attention. What do you want to know? I'm like, I don't know. I'm looking for color details there. And he goes, you have to ask me specific questions or else I can't help you. And I'm like, well, I don't know. He goes, okay, now you got four and a half minutes. <laughs> he was counting down. And I said, okay, okay. Uh, and I just grabbed something out of the air. And I said, uh, what kind of bike does everybody ride over there? And he went, oh my God, Brad, they all ride. We went from Thor to Brad in that instant. He said, everybody rides the same bike over here. They call it a black mamba. It's a black bicycle, and because of the way the tires are on them, in the dusty streets, the trail from the bike looks like a snake, like the Black Mamba snake has been through the dust there. So I put that in code of conduct, and I heard from at least two people that had done either missionary work or government work over there that said, he must have been here. Only somebody who's been over here knows what a Black Mamba bicycle is. So that's the difference. Those are the details that I really like to nail in the book. Um, okay. Yeah. Karen Harper. Uh, she says, asked, I know Karen Harper. Hello, Karen yes. Harper. Yes. Let me see. Let's go. Okay. She asks, what about Scotland as a scene site around our quest for independence or something about our quest for independence? Um, so yeah. So I know Karen Harper, uh, is an old, old friend of mine. We were, uh, we were neighbors when I was, uh, at the university of Southern California. And, uh, when the Rodney King riots broke out, uh, I was eating takeout, uh, Chinese takeout from Chin Chin, uh, on sunset with, uh, with Chin Karen and a, yeah, it's a great, great spot. I was having, uh, having dinner sitting in Karen's apartment. We we're all watching it on the news. Um, you know, Scotland is an interesting, it's possible if I could figure out a way to do an international intrigue component to it. And in such a way that uh, if and when the uh, the uh, kind of the separation between Scotland and the UK happens, that it doesn't basically kill the book. That's what I always worry about is if I do something too topical and then it comes to pass, that it may not be relevant if I miss the timing on it and that kind of a thing. And I'd have to figure out, you know, I'd have to weave in kind of a, what, Day of the Jackal sort of a thing where somebody thought if I could take out this uh, person in parliament, uh, of course, not the Scottish parliament, uh, because uh, Karen's sister is actually a politician in Scotland, uh, but uh, maybe down in London or something like that, kind of uh, seeing through how Patriot Games opened up sort of a thing. You know, that kind of stuff's possible, but I'm always careful how timely and how real. It's why I never wrote about bin Laden in any of my books, because I knew they'd eventually catch him or he'd die. And then you know how the book ends then. If the guy's dead, it's not exciting to read it if you know in real life. So I always try to be careful how much real life goes into the books. But great question. Try Karen, if, you, if you'd like to uh, to say a few words, I'm gonna, let me try to bring her in here uh, so she can at least say hi. Here we go. All right. Karen. All right. Karen. Hi, Brad. <laughs> Hello, Karen. Hello, oh my God, it's so so nice to join. When I saw that this was um, being um, broadcast on Zoom, I had to come in because my imagination runs riot, and you know some of the conversations that we used to have many years ago, and you know I 
I, I just I just love reading your book. So it's just wonderful to see where you've got to from when we were so young. <laughs> well, that's, oh, very, that's sweet. very sweet. I'm, gl I'm glad to hear from you. And I hope you're well. And I also hope uh, your, your wonderful sister, Emma, is doing well, too. She is definitely and um, a great person, as you know, and uh, does it for the right reasons. Yeah, you know, she's a wonderful politician. I love following her on social media, and I know she takes very good care of her constituents, and she's very concerned about their issues. Uh, so hopefully I'll get to Scotland sometime when both of you are there and we can all reunite. That'd be a lot of fun. That would be lovely. That'd be great, Brad. Look forward to it. Thanks, Karen. Are you, a, are you a Glaswegian? I'm not. I'm from the southwest of Scotland. Okay. So um, Dumfries and Galloway is an absolutely beautiful part of the the country. We don't have the highest peaks, but we have so many beautiful little fishing villages. And Wigtown um, is the writer's capital of the UK. And um, it's um, they have a festival every year in about October. And there's lots of writers and um, come from all over the world, actually, to that place. So very cool. I might have to hit that one of these years. <laughs> be great to have you thanks karen all right karen thank you well, that was pretty set the first time you've done that patrick where you've invited uh well the participants in for an yeah, audio there's a, there's an option that says allow to talk which is uh cool i don't believe since it's a webinar i can do a video and well we're breaking new ground here even if it's just audio i like that exactly yeah. exactly go ahead and let the next person in then why not that's much more fun <laughs> All right. If anybody would like to uh, uh, raise their hand, I'd be happy to do my best to let you in. Um, and as that's going, okay, here we go. Let's try this gentleman here. Oh, it's the previous person Aim, we heard from. Name Perez, you're up. Can, can you hear me, Mr. Thor? I can hear you. You have another question for me? Yeah, um, John Grisham said he lifts his plots from CNN. I know you partially addressed this issue, but do you read the news? Do your plots emerge? For, I know you say you read a ton, but do you get it from a combination of your news and you, the, your reading? Do, do you even know where your plots come from? I'm just curious. You know, people say, where do you get your ideas? And I say from the second glass of wine uh, <laughs> or when I'm in the shower. They seem to hit when I'm most relaxed. And I think it's the product of having a mind where I look at things and say, what if, you know, when I did my third book, State of the Union, I had been reading about kind of the or kind of I had been reading about the fall of the Berlin Wall and the disintegration of Soviet communism. And my mind went, what if we really didn't win? Not an alternative history thing, but what if the Russians actually rolled over and played dead? What if that was intentional so that they didn't have to keep up the arms race and they could focus their energy into developing new weapon systems and things like this quietly on the side while we pumped tons of aid into their country? So I'm always looking at stuff and it's, you know, I use this, it's a bad, it's a bad kind of word picture, but people always talk about the glass half full, glass half empty. I want to get underneath the coffee table and see the glass from the bottom. And what does it look like from that angle? I'm always trying to think differently and, um, and come up uh, with, with different ideas for the plots, but it is very, very informed by what I'm reading in the news. And I'm a voracious consumer of news. It's I'm always scrolling, which is probably not great to be doing, but I'm, I'm constantly, I subscribe to like six different newspapers and I'm just, I'm just marinating in particularly global stuff all the time. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Great question. All right, and I'll I'll intersperse some of the the print uh, Q and A. Uh, Luann uh, would like to know who did you base Scott Harvath on? Is it someone? Oh or an embodiment of several of your friends? How did, uh, and also, how do you get people to talk to you about their operations in such critical locations? So that's a great question. So Scott Harvath is really an amalgamation of a lot of people that I know. Uh, his first name, uh, I took my brother's first name and my mom had decided she didn't wanna give my brother two T's because she didn't like the idea of S-C-O-T-T-T-H-O-R. And so I had done Scott Harvath with one T, but I had so many readers ask why only one T that I had to give him the middle name Thomas and to say that his mother did not want to see S-C-O-T-T-T-H-O-M-A-S Harvath. Um, so it's a combination of people I know. The names come from my brother. Harvath comes from somebody that, uh, that we know at the Department of Justice. And, uh, and then to get people to talk to me, it's like anything else. You've got to earn, it's like it's networking. You have to earn people's trust. And the one thing that I always promised was that I, I would let people who contribute to the books read the manuscript before it even goes to my publisher. Uh, because what has invariably happened over writing, I'm writing my 24th novel now, is I will have some people say, we told you point A, we told you point C, but the B that you've come up with cannot be in the book. You have to take it out. And I was I, I made that up. And they'll say, we don't care that you made it up. That point B has got to come out of the book. You can't publish that. So sometimes I've been able to key in on stuff too well by just having kind of details uh, on either side. But I don't want to poison the, first of all, I'm an American and I'm a responsible citizen. And I would never want to put out any information that could be of benefit to anyone who wants to harm the United States or is an enemy of the United States and could be benefit them in some fashion. It hasn't happened a bunch. It's happened you know, you know, a handful of times. But I always respect that because I don't want to poison the well and not be able to go back to these sources. And it's a small, you know, depending on how elite you get with the operators and things like that and the, the intelligence uh, officers, it's a really small circle. So word spreads quickly. If you are difficult to work with or don't respect them when they say, eh, we kind of don't want that to be in there. So again, it hasn't happened a bunch, but I, I think I've been successful because I have a reputation of people know they can talk to me. I won't say anything I'm not supposed to. And you'll also get a chance to see what's in the book before it goes out. So I think those things help build trust. Here's a, let's see. Okay, Anne Feinstein, you're up. Um, here we go. Hello, Anne, how are you? Yes, Fred. I was expecting to hear beer brewing in the background when you came on. I almost can, I think. Uh-oh. I'm sorry, I what? Oh, I was going to say, I, I expected to hear beer brewing in the background. Yes, I, I, I can hear you. Is there a background echo? No, 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 no echo. Okay, I, was just, great. I was making a joke no, about I, beer. I've missed seeing you in person for quite a while. In fact, uh, bonus fact, we now live in Tennessee. Oh, wow. Great for you guys moved, huh? Yeah, permanently. Good for you. Is your husband based here or is he out of the military now? He's gone reserves. Fantastic. Good for you guys. You picked a great state. Yes, we're outside of Chattanooga. Chattavegas. Very nice. Are you still making <laughs> beer at home? Yep. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm going to be on the road this year. So hopefully uh, you guys will be someplace. We don't have the stops 
planned yet other than I'm going to be uh, in the Poison Pen Bookstore live on July 23rd, the evening of July 23rd to celebrate the release of Shadow of Doubt. So the other that that is we're breaking news here. So there you go. We are. Now, me, we're going to stream that event. So in the event that you can't actually reach Brad anywhere, you can watch him on July 23rd on our Facebook or YouTube. So, you know, it's great to have that outreach because Brad can't get absolutely everywhere. And Anne, Ken had a good question. Anne, would you oh, like sorry. to go ahead and, and read that? Or... Sure. Uh, if Well, my question that I typed is slightly different than the one I would ask. I just didn't want to go on forever go for it um if you could visit any location without fear of legal or political ramifications would you go to somewhere like iran or, or north korea or would you pick somewhere completely different you know if you could go literally you could say i want to walk the streets of insert country here and you knew you were going to be totally safe there was going to be no you know chaos caused by it, your visit it's it, that's that's a bad i've never been asked that question that's a great question um I think North Korea would be fascinating. So I think that was a great pick. Um, I would also love to be able to go anywhere I wanted. One of my dreams growing up was to, to go to Saudi Arabia because I grew up loving horses. I loved Arabian horses. Um, and I always wanted to just do some stuff in the desert. There's a lot of things in, in Saudi Arabia that I would love to see. So I think North Korea and Saudi Arabia would be two places I'd be very, very interested in, in going to. Well, like I said, thank you. And I can't wait to see you in person. And yes, yeah, I've still been be getting there. three copies of each one of your books. Well, that's, that's terrific. You must be on our VVIP list then if that's happening. Who knows? But you know, I still knock them out into about two, two between two hours and fifteen minutes and two hours and forty-five minutes every book. That's amazing. Well, maybe this year I'll be able to push you into the three-hour mark. We'll see what happens with the editing. Oh, you take care, and I can't wait to see you in person. Right back at you, Anne. It's great to hear from you. Thanks for doing this. Of All course. Right. Great. Okay. Let's see here. Let, let's go through some of these Q&A questions. Uh, Sylvie, I'm not going to try your last name. Oh, my friend from over in Europe. Yes, please yeah, give me Sylvie's question. Czech, Czech Republic. Hi, Sylvie. Yeah. She has a great question. She says, as far as Havana syndrome has been mentioned in the book, can you describe more about this syndrome? Why did you decide to use it in the book? How did you actually learn of it? So, uh, so Havana syndrome is, is an interesting... Um, uh, so this started manifesting Havana syndrome actually in Havana, Cuba with some Canadian personnel, some U.S. people. And the fear was, is that an enemy of the United States had created some sort of a directed energy weapon that could uh, cause headaches and uh, nausea and uh, discombobulation of all sorts, uh, inability to remain balanced and all this stuff. Uh, there, it happened to some of our personnel in China, uh, right down to, there were, I think one or two people in the Trump administration who had thought they'd been targeted, uh, with this Havana, with a device that, that created the symptoms that have collectively been known as Havana syndrome. And we went through every, we being the U S government was looking into everything, uh, 
at one point in time, and I don't know if they still do it, we used to we used to have the same cleaning products at all of our consulates and embassies around the world. So any U.S. facility you walked into smelled like any other U.S. facility because of like the floor polish and things like this. Um, uh, at least that's the way it was explained to me by somebody in the uh, in the Foreign Service. So. Uh, Sylvie, they are still looking into it. I don't know that they've ever gotten to the bottom of it. That, that, I, as far as I know, they have never identified what caused it. Uh, they tried to rule everything else out. Uh, and the one thing that stuck with me and why I used, and thanks for bringing it up because it is in Rising Tiger, one of the reasons that I did use it is the woman over in Shanghai, uh, so she was working at our diplomatic outpost in Shanghai, she not only fell ill with symptoms of Havana syndrome, her two dogs did too. And her mother came over from the States to take care of her. And then her mother fell ill as well. And so I thought that was interesting. Were they targeting her apartment? Was it something placed in her apartment? And the fact that it impacted the dogs as well is why I used it with Nicholas and his two dogs in Rising Tiger, because uh, per the accounts I had read, it had been, it had been uh, effective against not only humans, but uh, canines as well. So I hope that answers your question. And by the way, Sylvie got, I, and Sylvie, you'll forgive me, I can't remember which book it was, but Sylvie got, um, and I believe it's from you, Barbara. I think she ordered from, from you all at Poison Pen. Uh, do you remember, do you remember shipping to Czech Republic, Patrick? Offhand, I don't, but we may well. Okay, but I, I'm almost positive it, it came from from you all, and she took pictures of it over uh, out on the streets and in front of famous landmarks and stuff, and it was really, really cool, and I posted it on my Facebook page. So, uh, And Sylvie's a very active participant on my Facebook page, so thank you for that, Sylvie. Thanks for the question, and thanks for all your uh, support on Facebook. I'll look it up. And I hope your knee's talking. doing better. Um, okay. Okay. Um... Austin, prepare thyself. You'll be next. Um, but I just wanted to ask, Barbara, I remember when when this last time we we talked with Brad, you specifically mentioned Rising Tiger and said, we need to do a discussion about this book. Uh, what was it in particular about this book that kind of lends itself to a book discussion group like this compared to some of Brad's other books? Well, I think all Brad's books lend themselves to discussion, but um, I... I felt like he really broke new ground with a thriller by dealing with, you know, the the this whole bit about China and you know there there it's um a concept in law called adverse possession. If you can take a territory and keep it for a certain length of time, which, you know, um, or just drive everybody else of it, you can gradually expand your borders. So one of the things I like about Brad's book so much is that is the originality. I love his books set in Norway, and particularly the idea that China had declared itself an Arctic power, because I've been to Svalbard and all that. I've actually been all the way around Norway, all the way to Murmansk, where I have to wow. tell you, 98, and everybody nearly died because nobody actually thought the top of Russia could be that hot. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we, we tend to focus so much on Europe um, that we don't, we don't really explore other areas of the world where we should be paying attention. And I like the fact that Rising Tiger, which is a great title, by the way, um, absolutely perfect for what we're talking about since China is known as the tiger, directed, trade attention, paperback, handsome yeah, directed attention to the roof of the world, as they like to call it, 
um, and what's going on there, which is something, you know, we don't normally know about. But you could also, Brad, talk if you want, because we've already said we'll do spoilers. So how did you wrap this one up? Because it's always frustrating for me not to be able to talk to you about how you end your stories. Oh, and it's, it, it, you know, it's tough because I keep, I keep a running graph of where I am. Every time I finish a chapter, I have a Microsoft Word document with a table in it. In each chapter, it's got a certain amount of cells. I have a little blurb. Here's what happened in the chapter. Here's the chapter number, where in the world it is, what the day is, and what time of day. And I can color code the chapter numbers for did action happen in there. So at a glance, I can tell how long it's been since actions happened. And the little blurb for each chapter, I also color code so I can say, okay, it's I haven't seen green in four chapters. And green is Scott Harbath. And it's been red, 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 bad guy for three chapters. That's enough. I've got to bounce back there. So when I come to the end of the book, uh, you know, it's has that MacGuffin, as Hitchcock used to call it, has that been satisfied? Have have we gotten to, have we taken the 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 initializing action from the first page of the book, and has that been resolved by by the last <clears throat> page? And it's not just has it been resolved, but has there what is the fallout been? What is the logical fallout? What would be some of the wrapping up that you would have at the end? And that's that's oftentimes the best part of the book for me and the most challenging because I have to make sure that every single thread that I had during the book is kind of knotted off right there at the end. So each each book is different. Sometimes they they lend themselves very well to a clean wrap up. And then other times uh they uh they're cleanly wrapped up, but I leave a little bit open. Like there's something. So Shadow of Doubt is, I had a little something from Rising Tiger that I wanted to bring back in Shadow of Doubt. And I'm waiting to see if my editor is going to allow it all the way through. But there was some kind of, there's a little bit of sleight of hand I did at the end of Rising Tiger. I'm not going to say what it is now because I don't want to spoil it in case I do, I do make through the editing, get through the editing process, something that I wanted to do. But I, I left something so that the audience, the readers could be happy with it and think X happened, but yet that's not what happened. Actually, you took for granted that something happened at the end of Rising Tiger and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, that's right. Oh, so I'm there, there's a little thread from Rising Tiger that I'm hoping is back in Shadow of Doubt. I gotta I gotta wait and see get my edits back. All right, Austin, let's bring you on. Here you go. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. I've been a lifelong fan. My dad gave me a book when I was young and I've been reading them ever since. So super That's glad awesome. to chat. Thank you. So my question is. You know, it seems to me as you've been writing your books, you kind of had different flavors. Like, for example, the Last Patriot is kind of like has a lot of history. Kind of reminds me of like a Dan Brown, like kind of esque book. Hidden Order, it's like a murder mystery. Kind of is kind of a little flavor to it. Deadfall has World War II vibes. I'm just kind of wondering, mm -hmm. like, what other kind of flavors or themes might you include in like future books, and or what kind of flavor does Shadow of Doubt have coming up? Well, that's that's really, really good. That's a great question. You're very perceptive. And by the way, I love that your dad gave you the book. Uh, that That's something that I've seen a lot uh, where family members have turned each other on to to books, parents, to children and stuff like that. So please tell your, is your dad still around, Austin? Yeah, yeah. Please tell your dad I said thank you because that's, that's one of the greatest compliments you can pay an author to say, I like this book 
enough. I like this author enough that I'm going to give it to you, somebody who's very important to me. So that's that's really kind of your dad. I appreciate him. Um, it's a great, great question. So I, I've um, my kids have taken this meme and have been bombarding me with it uh, from uh, social media, which is uh, dads have two choices once they get to a certain point in life. They can either smoke meats or be all about World War II history, which I think is just is a very, very funny meme. So uh, Deadfall, you were right on the money. I've always loved like Alistair McLean novels. I've loved the movie adaptations like Where Eagles Dare with uh, Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. So Deadfall was really my opportunity to do a Saving Private Ryan sort of a thing. I, I love all of those great stories around that time. So um, I never was a huge Western guy. I suppose if I was, that would probably be something that that might be an itch I'd want to scratch with the books. But it, it's not anything I've ever really thought about, to be honest with you. I'm normally spurred by what I see in the in the press like what's hot or what i think is about to get really hot and come down the uh come down the uh, the pike uh but you were totally right about the history on the last patriot because i was all into jefferson and all of that kind of stuff and people you know people are not that familiar with poplar forest his other home uh and so it was real that was a really really fun fun book to do so uh, shadow of doubt, this is really, it, that one, Austin, is probably the hardest question to answer because I don't want to give away any spoilers yet. And it, it hasn't completely cleared editing. So I still right. don't know fully uh, where my editor is on it, but um, trying to see if I can tease some stuff out. So here's what I will do. I'll tell you this. So at the end of Deadfall, uh, you see the Russian intelligence operative crossover from up where Barbara was, up in the north of Norway, from, from Murmansk, going into Norway, which a lot of people in the Murmansk Oblast, a lot of Russians cross that border all the time. It's one of the few borders still open to Russians in Europe, and they will go across to Norway because they can get better prices on alcohol, chocolate, diapers, soap, all that kind of stuff. And so at the end of Deadfall, Gretchko, the, uh, the high-ranking uh, Russian intelligence officer, Makes like he's going over just to shop for the day. He's had some meetings in Murmansk. He doesn't take anything with him except the clothes on his back, and he crosses over. And as you know, Solvi and her team speared him out of a supermarket and take him away. So that's coming back in shadow of doubt. He has crossed over into Norway with a certain piece of information that's important for not only the Norwegians, but the Americans. And Scott Harvath is put into a very difficult position because the Americans want the information immediately. And the Norwegians are happy to cooperate, but they want to complete their debriefing of Gretchko first. And so Scott Harvath is given, uh, his fiance is in charge of the debriefing of Gretchko. Scott Harvath is given a very practically impossible task uh, by his own government, what he needs to do. And he is in a moral and professional quandary right from the very first page of Shadow of Doubt. I'll give you that much right there. Uh -huh. wow, that's cool. Tough, tough choice there for, for Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very tough, very tough. But thank you for your question. I hope that answers it. And I, you know, I don't know what, you, you know, next summer's book will be yet. I, I'm not there yet. I'm still reading. So, it, it, but it's a great, it, it's great. It's a fabulous question. And I'm glad that you do see that. Okay, Brad, there's obviously things that interest you that influence the writing. And I think that's very true of a lot of writers. Uh, so it's stuff that I want to know about, and it's also a way of storytelling that I like to read. So I'm constantly trying to create the kinds of books that I would want to read myself. So 
Thanks. Alistair yeah, keep it really fun. Thank you for answering my question. You're I'm welcome. so glad he mentioned Alistair McLean, an author that I truly love. But let me say this. When I was talking about uh, Murmansk and the fact that Brad has gone up to the Arctic, the world shipping lanes, as the world has warmed, are going to transform. And we're going to see much shipping, instead of going the normal southern routes, is going to be able to start going over the top of the world. And Brad will have been there first with a thriller because, well, you will, you know, you can think about an operation, you know, to, um, you know, like the Houthis in Yemen at the moment, you oh. can imagine an operation that would be sabotaging shipping going, you know, not across the southern part of the world, but over, over the Arctic part of the world. And, and that's coming. And as I talked about in Black Ice, it is actually faster and cheaper for the Chinese to go Shanghai to Rotterdam that's over right. Russia than to actually go the other way. And with the Houthis, uh, they're screwing everything up. And it's very, very interesting. Uh, a lot of economists, as the Houthis started really stirring things up in the Red Sea, there's been a drought down in the Panama Canal. And because of the, the water levels being down, they've really had to trim back the amount of ships that can go through the Panama Canal. So I'm, I geek out on all this stuff and how geopolitics interacts with the economy. And so I've been following these economists that are like, okay, if these couple of things don't change soon, we're gonna see a massive spike in certain costs because we're, we're having trouble getting through the Panama Canal. We're having trouble with the Houthis and the Red Sea. It's, it's the, all these things are interconnected and I find, them, I find them fascinating. But the job for me then is great. It's great that it's fascinating, but I don't write textbooks. I write thrillers. I want you to have an exciting, fun time reading the books. So I'm actually talking a little bit about that in the new book and why that stuff is important and why spies pay attention to all these things. It's just a little aside, but it's kind of kind of a fun thing for me to include. All right, let's see. So if anybody wants to say hi or ask a question, go ahead and raise your hand and I'll be happy to, to uh, bring you on. Um, there are a number of questions we can still go through though. Uh, Bob Culver is tuning in and he says, I loved Backlash. How did you research the Russian territory that Scott had to traverse? <laughs> so that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so I talked to some people, Bob, that were familiar with the Finnish side of that uh, of that area. Uh, so that where I was writing about is right where Finland's border is with Russia. There, uh, so there wasn't a ton of stuff uh, that I was able to get a hold of, but it was just winter and in the mountains. And I lived in the Uinta Mountains in Utah for a long time. Uh, and I was lucky enough to talk to some uh, some of our lead instructors for winter survival for our, uh, particularly for our special operations personnel and what they teach them to stay one step ahead of the enemy if they're, if they're down behind enemy lines and it's winter time. Like you'll see at the beginning of Backlash when the plane crashes and Harvath, this is something I learned from one of the survival experts. I said, what was one of the first things you'd do? And he goes, after all the Russians on board are dead? I'm like, yeah, after all the Russians on board this crashed aircraft are dead. He's like, that's the first thing you gotta do is make sure that these guys aren't gonna get the jump on you. He said, I would start pulling insulation out of the walls of the fuselage 
and packing it into my clothes to be able to survive. And so you see Harvath do that. And that's because I had a cold weather expert uh, explain to me how that stuff would go. So it's a great question. A lot of that stuff in there. I found old books and things like this. I end up with some really wild, when I can find them, I, I have just these weird books that are from like the 30s and the 40s and stuff like that from people who were explorers or worked on mining expeditions. And sometimes you can go through that stuff and find some interesting things. Uh, but a lot of a lot of particularly the the landscape with backlash was just my own familiarity with the mountains of Utah and kind of transposing uh, transferring that to Russia. It, you know, I'd watch documentaries about the wolves over there. I watched a ton of Nat Geo stuff and and that kind of a thing. So I gobbled up as much as was available. But I also thankfully it's kind of, you know, winter landscape, right? It's trees, it's, it's rugged terrain, it's wolves, and it's really, really cold. And that, that tends to be the same any place you go. So I was lucky that I kind of had this canvas where I felt comfortable. There wasn't a lot of room for error. Great. Uh, let's see, Tom uh, Seagraves asks, he says, over the years, I've heard there has been a movie in the works based on one of your books. Where does that stand now? Okay, so it's not movie now, it's television series. And we are at a studio. I got to choose my director. I got the biggest action director. I love this guy and I've loved him for the longest time and he has not done TV. And Harvath's gonna be his first foray into TV. Um, uh, I've got an incredible, I've got an incredible set of executive producers. One of them, I, I, I could tell you his name and I guarantee you've seen all his action television stuff. It's fantastic. And we just brought on board our writer. Unfortunately, we had a wonderful writer named Manny Cotto. And Manny Cotto had done a lot of the 24 stuff with Kiefer Sutherland. And we did not know that Manny had been diagnosed with cancer. And sadly, Manny passed away during the writer's strike. So we have been uh, working since the writer's strike. We Because of the, the terms of the strike, uh, a studio can't speak to writers. Producers can't speak to writers during the strike. So that precluded us from talking to writers. But we have a writer now that uh, just came on board the project and we're super excited. So now that the writer's on board, the studio is going to put out a release. And as soon as the release goes out, I'm going to post it on my Facebook account, all my social media accounts. You'll get to know who the director is. You'll get to know who all the producers are, who the writer is. He's freaking fantastic. So I'm very excited. And as soon as that release goes out from the studio, which I'm hoping is going to be, you know, like next week or two, then we'll be able to, I'll be able to talk freely, but I, I can't get out ahead of the studio. They want to be uh, the first ones, but yes, there have been deals in the past. Uh, Hollywood is full of these things where you've got authors that have optioned the rights to books. And for whatever reason, it hasn't been the right time. All of those getting to the altar and not getting married has been worth it for the dream team that we've got on this thing. It's amazing. So I'm very excited. So stay tuned. In the next couple of weeks, I hope that you'll have the full download. Great question, though. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, anonymous person has asked, uh, I know you incorporated some work on government surveillance in Blacklist, but do you ever see yourself weaving AI into a future story? Yeah. I. You know what? A couple of people have already done it. So that to me, uh, while it is interesting, and I do have AI, I've seen people do AI as kind of a malevolent thing. Um, where AI is really interesting for me is how 
basically uh, intelligence agencies are using it. So uh, yes, from a surveillance standpoint, but also kind of code breaking and things like that. So I have a little bit of AI in in this year's book, Shadow of Doubt. Uh, and it's it's more the ability to look at a kajillion things all at once and come up with an answer. I think that's probably one of the greatest benefits AI has for the espionage game. Uh, so at this point, I haven't seen enough that sparks something in my head as a writer that I want to incorporate it as a big element of the plot. And right now it's basically a tool. And I'm reading a lot about how intel agencies are using it as a tool. And that seems to be kind of the way I'm coming at it. But I think uh, I've read a couple of things and I'm blanket on the authors, but I've read a couple of things where AI has kind of been a malevolent force in books. So I kind of feel like people have already gotten there before me and I like to be first. So I'll pick another, I'll pick another thing. And I imagine with something like that, just as soon as you finish it, it's the whole game has changed. You know, things are moving Have so be fast. Careful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's a question I've heard asked at several events. Are you ever going to expand upon the Athena project? Yep. We, uh, I may be doing Athena project as a co-authored book, which is what we're looking at now. Um, so stay tuned on that. Uh, I, I would like to, and I've got a lot of fans that I think would like to do it, but I think for me to be able to do everything that I've got going on now with the TV show coming up with doing a Scott Harvath book every year, I think to bring, so when I did the Athena project, I wrote two books in one year and it was really hard. That was really hard to do, to do two quality books in the space of one year. And I've built uh, this law, you wonderful audience with putting out a Scott Harvath book every year. And I don't want that to suffer. I still want to do a Harvath book every year and have the quality be top notch. So, uh, but I've got ideas. So I've got a million Athena ideas. So the thing is finding the right potential co-author. And I think we found the person. So stay tuned on that one too. So we're breaking wow. a lot of news here. Kind of breaking it, bending about, it, bending news, not breaking it. How about a YA young Scott Harvath <laughs> series? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting it's an interesting question. I don't know much about the YA market. I know about the adult market, and um, so you know I think one of the mistakes people make is they have success in one area and they think it automatically translates everywhere else. I got a great steak restaurant. I could open an ice cream place and be just as successful tomorrow. Right. I think. Yeah. Wasn't it uh, Dirty Harry that said a man's got to know his limitations? Uh, so I think adult fiction is probably where I'm going to keep myself parked. I don't want to have to learn a new, new new game, so to speak. Doesn't mean it's not a great idea. Uh, I just don't know that that area is for me. Sure. Um, Sylvia, Sylvie in the Czech Republic has another a couple of questions here. Um, she says, thanks so much for answering my questions. I have a few others. Will we see, uh, is it Vijay? Vijay yes, and Vijay. in any of your upcoming books. So that's, those are those two beloved Indian characters from Rising Tiger. Uh, they do not make an appearance in Shadow of Doubt. Uh, so I don't know. I'm thinking about something where they potentially could make an appearance. I got to watch this part of the world and see. So I'd have to have a reason that India has a stake in the plot. And right now I don't have that. Uh, cause I love those characters too. And I got a lot of really great feedback. I know people love them. So I would love to bring them back. I just have to figure out the right way to do it. And so until that bolt of lightning hits me, nothing's happening yet with those two, but 
nothing happening yet doesn't mean nothing will happen. So fingers crossed. We'll see. World events may, in fact, steer you in that direction, you know, should it have yes. to go that way. You just don't they know. Might. Yeah. Right. And she also asks, um, apart from history and politics, do you plan to incorporate, uh, let's see, any other aspect? There may be a, a language thing here. Um, from any other branch, any other topic, for instance, from forensic science. Well, you know, I think it was uh, I think it was Austin who asked uh, talked about how Deadfall felt like a World War II thing, and The Last Patriot felt like a historical thing, and Hidden Order felt like kind of a criminal thing, kind of a murder thing. And what's interesting is I wrote uh, I had gone through the police academy back in Illinois to become a reserve patrol officer uh, back in Illinois for a, a small police department. And so I was living in that world of cr criminal investigations and law enforcement and all this kind of stuff. And so that definitely had an impact on me when I was writing Hidden Order. Uh, there's that, you have an interior perimeter at a crime scene, you have an exterior perimeter. Certain people can't come even into the exterior perimeter, but some can, but they can't come in further. There are all these little things from the police academy and from the police department that were going through my head at that time. So. Any of that stuff is possible. Forensics is possible. I mean, maybe if I I, I had a, a chief medical examiner move in down the, down the road from me, you know, a couple miles at the, the next place down the road, maybe maybe I would. Uh, if we were talking over one of the fences one day and I was fell in love with that kind of stuff, uh, you know, I think it was David Morrell who uh, you know Stephen King said in his book on writing that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I agree with that. And I take it even a step further. I tell people you should write what you love to read because not only is that where your passion is, but you have a mini PhD in that genre. You've read so many books. You know why Alistair McLean, for instance, his third novel, yeah, I didn't really like it. But four and five, wow, did he come roaring back? You have this great base. So um, I, I, I'm very careful, particularly now. I, you know what? It was great to have started as an author kind of before social media, uh, before everybody with an opinion could get right in front of your face and tell you what they think of your book or point to where you made a mistake. If I had a dollar for every time somebody's like, oh, you messed up, that gun doesn't come in that caliber. And I'm actually like, actually, Smith & Wesson made six of them. Two, two went to the royal family in the UK. Uh, one guy in Saudi got one. You know, So I'm really good about trying. doesn't mean I don't make mistakes, but people like to play gotcha a lot. So that does wear on you a little bit as an author. It, it, so to get into something completely unknown to me, another branch, uh, I don't think I'd ever start another uh, another kind of, what am I looking for, franchise, if you will, of writing. I'm not going to start writing about kind of a forensic scientist or anything like that, just because the the buildup, the education that I would have to have is is so extensive versus, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of decades now, and a lot of tradecraft, a lot of espionage work, while computers and things like that have changed, a lot of the basics are still the same. The bedrock is still there. So I feel very comfortable. It's like being a lawyer for 20 years, right, Barbara? And all of a sudden, I'm going to go be a dentist. Well, you're going to have to go to school to be a dentist and all this kind of stuff. There's a certain learning curve that you would have to go through. So I'm kind of happy in this, in this space, unless something really interesting happened in the world. Like one of my favorite TV shows ever was on Amazon Prime and it was all, Barbara's gonna love this, it all took place on Svalbard. It was supposed to be on Svalbard and it was called Fortitude. 
And it was about this small town where everybody was going crazy. And what happened was, is that the permafrost was melting. And I think it was like woolly mammoths or something like that were, were thawing out and they had a disease on them and it was spreading into the town. And so, you know, if I had heard about this, like really happening, I might want to write a thriller about that. And I would try to make it lean more towards the sheriff who didn't understand the forensics. So I'd have to have just little bits of forensics with that person. I don't know if that makes sense, Sylvie, or not, but I want to do what I know how to do. And while I like to challenge myself, I try not to go so far because the details are important. You don't want people, to, readers, to do what we call bump, right? So I don't want to, I want you to suspend your disbelief while you're reading the books and enjoy them. But I don't want to do anything where you're like, oh, that wouldn't happen or, oh, that's wrong kind of a thing. Nothing makes me angrier than a writer who puts a safety on a Glock. There is no safety on a Glock. And the minute I read that, I start looking for other mistakes because that to me is a simple thing you should know better. So I try to avoid getting myself in those in, in those problems. And again, I will completely backtrack on everything I just said. If you've got a great forensic scientist who's really to read, willing to read your manuscript and they'll point out all the mistakes, well, then maybe you, maybe you can do it. So anyway, I'll just contradict everything I said. I was just gonna ask kind of in related to that, the average copy editor now, wouldn't necessarily know that stuff, right? I mean, so do you have to have like another layer of copy editing done on some of the tech details? It it depends. So I've got my group of sharpshooters. I've got friends that I've developed over the years, law enforcement, military, intelligence community who can read through and see stuff that doesn't make doesn't make sense or is incorrect. Um, but yeah, it, you know, before we do all our copy editing now in uh, Microsoft Word, and it's almost like the legal field, Barbara, where it's redlined. And there's a column on the side and they can make comments. But you used to get sheets of onion skin in your manuscript where the copy editor would say, I looked this up on Google. Here's what I found. And you would, it would be in, it would be like paper clipped or on the, the, the next page it'd be inserted in the manuscript. And they would look up, okay, this gun that you're referring to, it says here, it's only a nine millimeter, where they used to really go in and detail, check that stuff. But again, I'm I'm lucky I've got people reading my books. And for me, it's it's like I'm bilingual. It's like speaking another language now with the guns and, and things like that. I, I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. Uh, you know, I still have this day, people come to show up on social media who found an early version of one of my, like my first book, Lines of Lucerne, and they'll say, you called this a clip. It's not a clip. It's a magazine, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, you're totally right. And then I link them to a magazine article. So it's a different kind of magazine that I wrote called uh, uh, Press Don't Squeeze because you don't squeeze a trigger, you press a trigger. So for a gun magazine, I did a whole article, basically a mea culpa saying, here's what I've learned. And thankfully I had people who were willing to teach me about nomenclature and things like this. So nobody's born an expert. We get there through trial and error. If there were time in point of fact, these kinds of things can be corrected in paperback versions. There's no way you can go back and fix the original version, but you know, you can yeah. update. The other, the other thing I would say for Brad, too, and, and it's a good thing to think about, is technology has become um, more and more sophisticated, at least in the spy department. They're going back to old school. You can't hack a piece of paper dropped in a park or in a newspaper or a note in a tree. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me that, in point of fact, some of the old school stuff is becoming, you know, in, in Back, back to work because digital stuff is so easily hacked. 
And that's why we weren't able to catch bin Laden for so long. He realized that as well. And so that's why he had a courier to take things out and then email from someplace completely far away. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've gone, it's, it's sometimes not even low tech, it's no tech. Like you said, it's a little exactly. dead drop. It's a little hollowed out bolt where you can take the top off the bolt and put the paper inside the bolt and then put the head on the bolt and screw the bolt into the hole of the park bench. And that's it. Nobody knows that that's there except the person that's supposed to. And they see a a, a piece of ch a chalk mark on a brick somewhere uh, in DC that lets them know, okay, the dead drop's been loaded. I need to go pick up whatever's inside that bolt. So yeah, so that stuff is coming around. One of the interesting things is though with AI, because we've talked about AI today, you know, the days of you having a fake passport and thinking you can just go into a country as blah, 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 when you were there last time as Mr. John Smith and the time before that as Patrick O'Doole, O'Toole, uh, those days are gone. Those days oh. are gone. You know what? You could go to our local airport, Sky Harbor now, and if you're checking in, they don't look at your um, paper anymore. It's all facial recognition. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's just so many things changing all the time, but I think it's a comfort to spy writers who think, well, if I just can't figure this one out, I'm just going to go back to old school and it'll work, <laughs> you know, see how it goes. Patrick, are there any more questions that um, are we doing on time here? There's um, yeah, there are a few last questions. Okay. Uh, why don't we give it like 10 minutes and that's probably long enough. Okay. Um, let's see, Luann would like to know, uh, how do you schedule, schedule your writing? Do you have set hours, set days? Mm -hmm. So great question, Luann. Um, I treat it like a, a job, like eight to six, and that's not all writing the whole time. I mean, I'm, I'm doing research, I'm reaching out to people, but I try to treat it like a normal job. And it is, Jack London is famous for saying, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. And that's really true, particularly when you're trying to put out a book a year. You just, you can't wait for the great idea fairy to sit down or the inspiration fairy, the great idea fairy you have to have before you start writing the book. You gotta have that great idea. But the inspiration fairy is always gonna be flying off somewhere. Uh, and it's it can be really tough. One of my favorite books on the subject is by Stephen Pressfield and it's called The War of Art. And uh, if you're a writer, if we've got any writers in the audience uh, today, I love that book. It's like this, it's very thin. You can read it really fast. It deals with the issues that writers have, writer's block. How do I get more discipline with my writing and things like that? So I try to treat it as a regular job uh, because if I don't, as the deadline gets closer, suddenly I have no more free time. I'm working Saturdays, I'm working Sundays, and it's just a... It's just a, it's a pressure cooker and that's not fun. Um, let's see, here's another question from anonymous attendee. Uh, what is your number one hobby that isn't related to reading or writing? Mm. Hmm. That's good. I've always been, um, I believe that shooting is a perishable skill. And so I really enjoy staying up on my, on my shooting. My, my favorite hobby though, is I'm, I'm right there with Barbara. I'm, I was a, travel journalist, if you will. I had a travel show on public television before I became an author. Travel is my absolute all-time favorite hobby. That's, if you said, okay, you can spend the next 48 hours doing whatever you want and we can beam you there. Uh, it's, for me, it's traveling. I love traveling. And I just, it's part of who I am as a writer and being exposed to different ways of life, different cultures, different people. Uh, it, it just, it, it juices up my creative batteries. I love travel. 
Are there any places on your list that you'd love to go that you haven't been to yet? Well, I didn't get to go to Svalbard, which I uh, I want to. I definitely want to do that. Uh, there's a bunch in Norway I haven't done. So I've got a real Norwegian kick in Norway plays in the new book too. Um, so that's a, that's a big place for me. Um, yeah, I'd like to get to, uh, the Antarctic. I think that would be a lot of fun too. Uh, so it's, it's a couple of places I haven't, I haven't been, you know, I've been to so many places just virtually with writing the books. It feels like I've been there, even though I haven't. Uh, so India is a place that I would really, really love. So there's, there's, there's a lot of spots that I haven't been to, but I keep going back to some spots that I just absolutely do love. I love Switzerland. I love Greece. I love France, uh, that kind of a thing. So there you go. Okay, Luann, uh, she asks, have you ever shot a, a Beretta 50 caliber? I have oh. quite an experience. <laughs> so I or maybe it's Barrett. came out to Phoenix, Barrett. Yeah, Barrett. And those are made in Murfreesboro. Uh, Barrett is headquartered not far from Nashville in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So I came out to visit a friend uh, from the uh, previously, I believe Robbie was with the Rhodesian uh, Special Forces and uh, he had the competitor. So my buddy Robbie uh, had the competitor for the Barrett 50 Cal and it was called the Robar RC50. And uh, they had the U.S. Coast Guard um, contract for their 50 caliber rifles. So their snipers in the Coast Guard helicopters, when they would go after drug runner boats, the the sniper, the, uh, the marksman would be in the helicopter and they would fire through the engine block of the drug runner boats. And it was uh, great stories about how they perfected the, the, the rifle because the muzzle brake in the front of the rifle, they had to do it so that the energy shot, so the bullet would go out the front, but the energy would shoot through the ports on the side because you didn't want it coming back at the helicopter which was all this stuff I never thought of. So when I, I came out to uh, Scottsdale to visit them, uh, not far from Poison Pen, and they took me out in the desert to shoot it. And I said, what are we going to shoot at? And we stopped at some Mini Mart and bought all their like big milk jugs that the Mini Mart had. I think I spent like 150 bucks on milk. And we put these things way out. We like got in the car and drove to set these things down and then got back in the truck and drove back to set up the rifle. And so that was my experience. So yeah, I've shot a 50 and I actually, I have, I just, I had some, uh, some back to Norway. I had some friends from uh, Norwegian law enforcement in Nashville about two months ago and we went out shooting and actually where we went, we did, we did shoot the, the Barrett 50 Cal. So I've, I've shot that as well. Yeah. So they're fun. You're right, Luann. They're cool. I'm going to bring Luann on. She'd like to just maybe ask another question or say hi. Oops. Thought it was. Uh, Luann, here we go. There we go. Hi, Luann. Hi. So great to hear your voice and talk with you. I love it. I love all your books. I've read oh, them. Thank I you. Adore it. But I love shooting also. And I was like, he's got to have shot a 50 cal at least once. So this is yeah. super cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, we shot. Um, it's the stuff that makes it explode. I don't remember the name of it. Tinanite or something. Yeah, there's an it in there. And I'm, 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 yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm drawing a complete blank right now. I, on, I can't recall it either. But anyway. Tannerite or something. You're right. That it, it is something very similar to that. Yeah. Did that as well as this plane shooting. Of course, it was on the uh, uh, 
tagout. I can't even think of it right now. But, you know, it was on the stand, the little tripod on the tripod. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great distance, great fun. Yes. Um, Athena Project, you got to bring it back. Even with another <laughs> writer, got to bring them back. Love those girls. Anyway, I'm from North Carolina and I, I'm trying to get out to one of my bucket lists is the Poison Pen. Okay, Scottsdale. Aww. I've been following days. I want to come out there. Love just love the bookstore. And thanks. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your answering all the questions. This is awesome. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed this. This was Barbara's idea a while ago and we want to move these things closer together from, we've talked about, okay, the book comes out in July. Can we do something in the fall for everybody who's read the hardcover and, and do one of these? So hopefully we'll be able to do that for shadow for uh, this year for Shadow of Doubt. When we did it the first time, we did do it in October. Um, and then this fall kind of got away from us all. But you know what? It'd be lovely to have a break from the election. And so I think we should oh, definitely yeah. think about, you know, giving people a chance to do something other than, you know, brood upon what events are right. holding around us. Um, I did mention that Deadfall is coming out at the end of April in paperback. Was there anything that you'd like to say, Brad, quickly about Deadfall? Because as you say, it is the, the second anniversary today, today. Um, of the Ukraine-Russia thing. And, and there are some, I think, difficult and ominous things going on in regard to that war that are very worrying. Yeah, so it's 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 really interesting that we're doing this on the second anniversary. Uh, we did have at least, uh, I mean, Austin had brought up that Deadfall was like kind of a World War II story. And I explained that that is something that was my intent with that. You know, it's funny. This is where you have to be really, really careful about what you do, uh, because the I had the Ravens in the book were an offshoot of the Wagner group. And I, I had the Wagner group. I believe it was Tom that asked that question about the landscape in uh, in Backlash. And that was we had Wagner group mercenaries chasing Harvath through the wilds of Russia in the cold, cold, snowy uh, landscape there. And uh, here, Prigozhin, uh, Yuri Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, uh, you know, his airplane fell out of the sky uh, after he had kind of gotten within 200 uh, kilometers of Moscow uh, with the revolt that he was going to lead. So the fact that I didn't have anything, this this is why there was no leader of the Wagner group in Deadfall, so to speak. This is why I didn't write about bin Laden. You know, I try to stay away from these figures where they're very controversial and you know something's going to happen to them at some point. Uh, so yeah, it's second anniversary of, uh, you know, it's 2014, the Russians went into, uh, to Eastern Ukraine, to the Donbass. And then two years ago, they really started the war that Ukraine is in now. Uh, but writing that book was, I'd always wanted to take Scott Harvath and, and do one of these band of brothers type things, saving private Ryan, where eagles dare, as we talked about in the beginning, Barbara, with the Alistair McLean books that I loved as a kid growing up. So this was dead. That's what deadfall was for me was to take Harvath and put him in a European world war II style theater of war and to, uh, and to run through all those things. Like you know, I love the fact that the woman that picks up Harvath at the train station is not a Ukrainian intelligence official. She's actually a Russian that got to the Ukraine. So there's all these kind of deceits and deceptions that were so common, these double crosses in a lot of that World War II fiction. Uh, that, that was a lot of that was a lot of fun for me to do in that uh, in that book. I'm really sorry that um, the war hasn't ended and, you know, therefore the book would be you know, would be over. 
Um, but anyway, no point in talking about that right now today. So thank you all. Patrick, was there anything else that I didn't want to smash somebody's final question? Are we done? No, I think we're done. I just wanted to kind of share the results of the little poll that I I created, which was, um, yeah. you know, in what format did you read Rising Tiger? And I'm I'm happy to say that print book has won by a landslide. Okay. <laughs> Not that okay. all different methods. That's kind of a self-serving statement, but uh, <laughs> yeah, ebook second place, audiobook third place. That's so. really interesting. And I and I will say for those of you who may watch our streaming events in the event that you can't actually join us in Scottsdale, one reason we do them is in fact to allow people who do read ebooks or listen to audiobooks to have um, a chance to listen to Brad or any other author. Um, they aren't forced to actually buy a print book, although we hope that they will buy a print book. But you know, Brad, you have a you have an audience in those other platforms. And, you know, I think it's nice that we can serve them um, in a way that would be really difficult in a more traditional bookstore event program. No, and I've really appreciated you and Patrick doing these virtual events with me. So thanks, Barbara. And I'm looking forward to us being in person and having fans come in the store and all that good stuff uh, this summer, July 23rd. Kick and I've off. scouted out a new restaurant. You'll be happy to know. Ah, <laughs> the one we went to last year was fabulous. So was thank good. you. Well, we have another opportunity. Anyway, thank you all very much. Those of you who joined us, um, I appreciate your coming. And we will hope to see you in July one way or another. So enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you so much. Good night. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.